Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. Tonight is awards night as we celebrate New Zealand's most valuable research prizes, the Prime Minister's Science Prizes for 2020. There are some household names amongst this year's winners, associated with a topic that probably comes as no surprise. I'm talking, of course, about the COVID-19 modelling team from Te Punaha Matatini. Frequent media guests Sean Hendy and Susie Wiles are among the large team that has taken out the big prize for science which is transformational in its impact. And University of Otago epidemiologist Michael Baker has won the PM Science Communication Prize for his media efforts. Michael has been very busy. He's done more than 2,000 interviews since January 2020. Blimey. Anyway... Congratulations, everyone. We'll meet a couple of other winners later in the show, but first, let's catch up with Sean and fellow University of Auckland researcher Kate Hanna via Skype. They are both part of Te Punaha Matatini, which is a multidisciplinary centre of research excellence involving experts from many universities. The centre was set up to apply complexity science to critical issues of our time, And really, it doesn't get much more critical than COVID-19, does it? A very big congratulations for what's actually an enormous team effort. I was looking at the list of people who are involved in this prize, and there are 24 people. Tell me about that, Sean. Yeah, the 24 people that that we've named on the prize is even bigger effort. You know, there's other researchers who perhaps weren't engaged full-time in the work, but contributed part-time. And then everybody's uh, whanau as well. You know, we've had an awful lot of support from our families and from our colleagues who've maybe had to pick up our teaching load. So it's been a, it's been a big effort from a lot of people. That core team um, of 24 people really came together in late March, early April. So just as we were going into lockdown, we'd sort of started a, a, a modelling program. And in those last few weeks of March, we were really looking to get that going to address some of the big modelling questions that we knew would be coming for the country. And so that's the, the core of the team were really people who sort of got engaged and were working full-time on this project through uh, late March and, and most of April and into May. So what was the varied skill set that people brought to this project? You, I know, used to be primarily a physicist, although you are much more than that these days. I do computer simulation in physics, but I'm very interested in in complex systems and networks. And of course, when we think about how um, diseases spread, they they spread through our social networks. And so so there was a natural correspondence for me. You know, we did have people who'd done infectious disease modelling before. We'd had a number of small projects within Tepunaha Matatini. You know, we were involved in the Mbovis eradication, working with MPI um, and a number of other small projects like that. But, you know, we had public health experts, we had computer scientists, we had people who were experts in the genomics. On the science communication side of things, we we had Kate, who was leading that strand of work, um, trying to understand the the effectiveness of of messaging, how to combat disinformation, for example. And then, we, you know, we had 
uh, other science communicators like like Susie Wiles, of course, who, who everybody will know, played a very prominent role in the response. So it was a very wide-ranging, um, multidisciplinary team that, that were involved in this work. So it was about doing some quite intense data modelling, but then also conveying that information in a usable form. That's right. We were very keen to make sure that as soon as possible, the work that we were doing for government got shared with the public. Um, so the public at, at times were maybe only a week behind uh, or even a few days behind uh, getting the information that the that the prime minister saw, and of course it's you know some of that some of the stuff we were trying to communicate was quite complicated. So we did rely on having you know some fantastic communicators like like Susie Wiles, you know her partnership with Toby Morris at the, the the spinoff, you know the cartoons that they produced that were able to illustrate some of the some of the modelling techniques that we were using. So it was a rapidly evolving situation and a rapidly evolving virus too. So you had to keep rapidly running to catch up with what was happening? Yeah, it was it was quite an intense period. We didn't have a day off for quite, for quite a while. I think it, I think it wasn't, you know, from about mid-March, many of us were working, you know, right through the weekends, working really long hours through till about mid-April once, once the sort of situation started to come under control. So, yeah, incredibly intense period for everybody. And it was just amazing to watch everybody pitch in. You know, the, the, the people that are part of that core team, they never said no. We were throwing curveballs uh, because of the changing circumstances here and overseas. You know, people were prepared to, to just pitch in and really do the work that, that was needed to respond to that. So it was an amazing time, a very tiring time for everybody, but, but quite an amazing time and something that none of us will ever forget. I imagine the important thing was that you were also very specifically considering the New Zealand circumstances, which were quite different from a lot of other countries when it came to COVID. Yeah, I, th- I think that was a really important part of our, our project was actually looking at New Zealand specifically. There were there was a lot of modelling that was being done overseas and that was really useful to us. I mean, obviously, you know, New Zealand wasn't dealing with the same magnitude of, of an outbreak as, as, as countries like the UK were and we were able to follow some of the science being done there. But then that had to be translated into what would be the impacts for Aotearoa New Zealand. And one of the, one of the things we realised very early on that this pandemic had had the potential to have a very severe impact on Māori and Pacific people. And so that was a particularly important piece of work that we initiated quite early, was to try and understand the potential impacts on, on Māori and Pacific people. And, and of course, you know, unfortunately, we, we now know, you know, um, looking at, at, at what happened in March and April and then in the August outbreak, that actually the impact is much more severe for Māori and Pacific people because of the, you know, existing inequities in our healthcare system that mean that, you know, a lot of the other conditions that are associated with severe outcomes from COVID-19, you know, they're they're more prevalent in the Māori and Pacific population than they are uh, in the rest of the New Zealand population. So that was a really important piece of work. Kate, you might want to say a little bit about that. Kate was really instrumental in leading in leading that project and pulling that team together. Absolutely, Alison. We we knew immediately that we needed to think about what it meant for Aotearoa and New Zealand, um, both looking at the modelling that the main modelling team that Sean Lee were doing, and also thinking about um, the infodemics, so the the good and bad plethora of information that people were receiving, and so the communications that were being um, shared in New Zealand by people like Susie Wiles and Toby Morris, or or by the Prime Minister and the COVID-19 communication strategy, alongside the disinformation that we saw taking place. And with that, we, we really wanted to highlight that we knew there would be differential impacts for Māori because of 
intersections at different points the whole way through the pandemic as it rolls out, differential exposure, differential impacts, um, differential outcomes. And so we incorporated that quite quickly using a variety of, of different proxy indicators for the, that um, institutional and systemic racism that Sean mentioned, and we're able to model quite quickly, well, into May, what that might look like. And then, of course, as Sean's alluded to, um, when we did have the Auckland-August cluster, we did see that those differential impacts did play out in in the number of um, fatalities and and deaths which we saw in that cluster, which really proved that we really, it was elimination that had helped protect our most um, vulnerable and at-risk communities in New Zealand. That was great work that you did. Tell me a bit more about this whole area of misinformation and disinformation. When the pandemic first kind of popped up um, on our radars in January, February, and when Susie first started talking to us about it, we immediately saw that internationally there was a lot of disinformation and misinformation being shared. There were quite a lot of conspiracy theory being talked about. Um, There was a lot of underlying racism, xenophobia, um, nationalism, and other kind of um, unpleasant uh, and difficult to deal with um, impacts um, in the kind of discourses we were seeing in social media and and, and in state media and in in all sorts of locations. And we thought it was really important that we started trying to watch this and monitor it uh, so that we could see what the impacts might be as covid potentially came closer to New Zealand. And so we started looking at it in January and then have continued to monitor social media and mainstream media references to COVID-19 denial, COVID-19 in lots of different ways. And we've seen a lot of changes over time um, in what has been a very eventful year for New Zealand and for the rest of the world, yeah. So do you think the level of disinformation has increased or do you think that perhaps with the work that you've been doing, you've been able to contribute at least in some way to minimising it a little bit? I think that the level of um, disinformation has remained relatively static um, up until about October, November. Uh, and then it increased quite significantly. And But what did increase at the same time as the disinformation increasing was the discussion of that disinformation in mainstream media, both in New Zealand and internationally, to the extent that we obviously um, subsequently from the New Zealand election, the US election, and then obviously the capital insurrection have seen the ways in which social media and mainstream media share and talk through things and expose people to to, to um, subjects and topics they perhaps hadn't thought about yet. So part of it is more discussion of things. What I think has been one of the great successes that we have been able to contribute to is while there has been more discussion of disinformation and misinformation, there is also more understanding of what that looks like and how to counter it. And that's the work that I'm really proud of, that we have always done our analysis in the context of, and then how do we deal with this? Offering solutions to individuals and to communities and to whānau, and also to to the government and to anyone who's interested, decision makers anywhere, about how you deal with disinformation when it presents en masse, as we have seen it do. Things are changing a bit at the moment with the rollout of vaccines. Are you still doing modelling work around things like vaccine uptake? We're working at the moment on on different scenarios and and in particular how we get that balance right between managing our borders 
and as the, as the vaccine becomes more prevalent here in New Zealand, that's really quite tricky stuff because, of course, that also depends on what's happening in the rest of the world. Um, and we can see some parts of the world are having some success with vaccine rollout, and that's helping them combat the epidemics that they're dealing with at the moment. Uh, but we're seeing other parts of the world where, where these new variants are actually having a really severe impact. It's going to continue to be a difficult year, even even with the, the vaccine rollout. You know, one of, one of the key things is, is going to be for life to return to normal is going to be to, to see the vaccine actually deployed globally. And at the moment, we're just seeing a few rich countries who are able to, um, to vaccinate large chunks of their population. And really, the risk doesn't go away until everyone globally is protected. So you might have some modelling to do for a while yet, you think? Yeah, we're anticipating um, working on this for, for at least another year. You know, it's academically interesting work, but it is quite quite tiring, and also the stakes are quite high. So it is it is starting to wear a little bit. But yeah, we're 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 trying to make sure that that we can we can um, keep the the kind of pace that we have been working at going for another year or so, and then hopefully. Uh, the, the global situation will start to come under control and, and this type of work can be done at, at more like the normal pace that, that research um, proceeds at. So assuming we reach a point where the pandemic is undeclared, like it's said that it's at an end, what are you going to do with all of the tools and the expertise that you've been developing in the last year? Yeah, look, we, we want to make sure that the, that it's it's preserved for, for future use. So we're going to make some of the, the tools that we've built, we'll make those open um, so that they can be maintained by other scientists, you know, you know first of all us in the, in the first instance, but but then, then picked up and, and developed by other scientists. I mean, they'll be useful for other infectious diseases that, of course, we do have problems with um, in, in normal times, you know, including things like, um, you know, the recent measles uh, outbreak that we were dealing with a, a couple of years ago, and even things like seasonal influenza. So they'll be useful immediately in the, for, for combating diseases like that. But should we have another pandemic, and, you know, let, let's hope not for a very long time, um, but in another decade, those tools will be available to be used and to be built on. That was not the situation we found ourselves in this time last year. We really had to build those tools from scratch. Um, so we want to make sure that the, that the next generation of um, New Zealand public health researchers and officials have those tools available to them that, that are New Zealand specific and can be really used to combat situations like this. And Kate, what do you think? Do you think that there are lessons we can take away from this COVID experience that might be useful in other situations, perhaps? Oh, absolutely. Even now, the work around COVID-19 disinformation has us engaging with looking at other forms of disinformation, specifically around uh, white supremacism, violent extremism, extreme misogyny, um, racism, and other dark parts of the internet. Um, the links between the kinds of disinformation we've started looking at um, in January last year through to the kinds of disinformation we're seeing now, are seeing the, those, um, the steps kind of skip more quickly from uh, somebody maybe sharing all, um, thoughts about COVID-19 vaccines, for example, through to sharing much more extreme material. Um, it seemed to have become much more quick. And so we're really, really interested in trying to understand this, this media landscape for New Zealand and also for the world much better and in a way that is situated starting from Aotearoa New Zealand what does it mean here and therefore how can we then understand in other countries that might share similar experiences um, of colonisation uh, with 
relationships between Indigenous peoples, etc., that, that we can, you know, fruitfully think about what it means to live in this um, media landscape we currently live in. And a big thanks and congratulations to Sean Hendy, Kate Hanna and their colleagues in Te Punaha Matatini, winner of the 2020 Prime Minister's Science Prize. Now, let's meet Chris Cornwall, a marine biologist at Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, and winner of the 2020 Prime Minister's Emerging Scientist Prize. My work seeks to understand how climate change will impact marine ecosystems, but specifically focusing on kelp forests, what we call rocky reefs here in New Zealand, and other places similar to New Zealand, and also tropical coral reefs, and really looking at mechanisms that underpin why species respond so badly to things uh, like ocean warming and ocean acidification, but also looking at which species might be able to resist its effects and why. So global warming, ocean warming, we hear a lot about that. Just briefly tell me about ocean acidification. Yeah, ocean acidification is caused by increasing concentrations of CO2 in our atmosphere. That CO2 then goes into seawater, it absorbs into seawater and it causes a chemical reaction. And that reaction changes seawater carbonate chemistry in a variety of ways that makes it really hard for organisms that have calcareous exoskeletons to, to build those skeletons. And so what it does is it increases the amount of hydrogen ions in seawater. So hence the term ocean acidification. So it drops the pH of the ocean. So what are these calcareous species? Give me some examples. Obvious examples are corals, like in coral reefs, uh, but also here in New Zealand we have the calcifying red seaweed called coral and algae. Um, they're really ecologically important and they're also present in tropical reefs. But here in New Zealand, for example, they are the pink stuff that you see on the rocks when you go out for a snorkel or you go looking in rock pools. And they act to protect the rocks from boring of other organisms. They also bind together the rocks and corals and coral reefs. But more importantly, the act is uh, sort of like a required settlement substrate for a lot of marine invertebrate larvae. So think about power and kinna. The coral and algae, they emit this chemical cue in the water and it tells the power and kinna larvae to come back to that reef because it's a good place to live. And in the tropics, they do the same for corals so the coral larvae can come back to the reef. So if there's an impact on the coralline algae at this bottom of the food chain, then it could ripple all the way up through the whole ecosystem. Yeah, essentially, and yeah, that's what they've found in numerous research uh, efforts is that if we remove coral and algae from an ecosystem, and there's some places in the world that have naturally elevated CO2, and in these locations you get hardly any corals as well, for example, because there's no nothing for them to settle on. So they're really ecologically important. Yeah, they're what we call a foundation species. So what's your research actually doing then? So there's three facets of the research that the prize is based around. The first one is understanding why the ability of these organisms to make their calcareous skeletons is impaired by ocean acidification. And so that was using geochemical techniques where we can measure the internal chemistry of the coral and algae where that calcium carbonate's laid down. And so what we found was that those species that are more badly affected for both coral and algae and corals are those that can't maintain pH inside themselves. Um, so under ocean acidification, the, the pH in the seawater is declining and those sensitive species, the pH in what we call their calcifying site or their calcifying fluid also decreases, making it harder to precipitate those skeletons. 
Part two was we were looking at traits that imparted tolerance, and what we found were those species that could resist the effects of ocean acidification did so by maintaining the high internal pH of the variety of other techniques they had, so traits they possessed. But we wanted to test whether or not they could gain these traits via acclimatization over the course of one lifetime. And unfortunately, we found that for both for a variety of coral species and for calcifying seaweeds, as they couldn't do this. But the next step was really to understand, can they gain some of these traits over multiple lifetimes? Like the effects of climate change are manifesting over uh, generations, potentially, for some of these organisms. So we grew coral and algae for six generations in the lab and found that after generation six, they were essentially completely resistant to the effects of ocean acidification which was really uh, interesting finding. And lastly, we wanted to know, well, there's thousands of different research uh, papers out there that examine how ocean acidification and ocean warming impact things like coral reefs. We wanted to know how this manifests. And so the last part of the work is actually embargoed at the moment, but I can talk to you now a little bit about it. Um, so we basically modelled how ocean acidification and ocean warming would impact real-world reefs across both the Atlantic, Indian and Pacific Oceans and found that, unfortunately, all of our reefs were were badly impacted in terms of their growth rates. Well, we look forward to hearing more about that, but what I'm hearing from you really is that there's quite a sense of urgency about this process of ocean acidification and the impact of climate change on our oceans and the species that live in it. Yes. So there's really three different key threats that's caused by increasing CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere, and that's the ocean acidification that I just talked a lot about, ongoing ocean warming, which is problematic. Um, So, for example, in places like Tasmania, they've already lost a lot of their giant kelp forests, so similar to the kelp forests that we have here in southern New Zealand. They've lost most of that already because of ocean warming. Uh, They've also had invasions of black long-spined sea urchins, um, which are now invading New Zealand. And so these things take a kelp forest and essentially create what we call uh, sea urchin barrens. These are things that are happening. They're happening now. So we've seen major impacts of ocean warming. And then marine heat waves is sort of the third one where... We've seen in Australia large impacts of these marine heat waves. They can knock out an ecosystem such as um, places in the Great Barrier Reef, Western Australian coral reefs, and also kelp forests in Western Australia. We've seen them all decline due to these marine heat waves. And then here in New Zealand, we've had similar similar effects um, in the 2017-2018 event. This award comes with um, a couple of hundred thousand dollars. What are you going to do with that money, Chris? So I get $150,000 to further my research. And what we're going to do is further understand how New Zealand's marine ecosystems respond to climate change. We're going to look at the genetic mechanisms that underpin a lot of these responses that we see in terms of species' abilities to, to gain tolerance to the effects of climate change. But also we're trying to understand how some of the non-calcareous seaweeds will respond to ocean acidification. So it's relatively complex where... Even though they don't form skeletons, their internal pH is compromised as well. But they could change, um, they could benefit somewhat from increasing CO2 concentrations. Much like terrestrial plants, they could increase their photosynthetic and growth rates. So we're using the money for a lot of that, but also monitoring efforts here in New Zealand to detect when 
marine heat waves occur to look at it at a, at a species specific level and see which species have been badly impacted um, around the Wellington region uh, and then further understand why they're, why they're impacted. Thanks, Chris. That was Chris Cornwall from Victoria University of Wellington and winner of the 2020 Prime Minister's Emerging Scientist Prize. Our last winner tonight is teacher Sarah Washbrook from Remarkables Primary School in Queenstown. She's the first technology winner of the Prime Minister's Science Teacher Prize. Technology is really a combination of everything. I see technology as an umbrella subject. So within technology, you've got a little bit of every other curriculum subject area that there is. It's currently split into different technological areas. At Remarks, we teach the students all the different technological areas. Um, So that includes things like hand materials. So that was for people who aren't sure what technology is. That was the um, old woodwork, metalwork kind of program, but a bit more modernised. And things like soft materials. We have a food technology specialist at Remarks that um, we work with as well. We also do a lot of integration of things like digital technologies into the technology curriculum that we teach too. So the students are encouraged to create things, design things, build things, make things? Yes, absolutely. Um, so in the classroom, we have what's called a like practical hands-on approach. Um, the students design and make lots of different products or outcomes or solutions to problems. Um, we try and make sure that they are as authentic as possible. So we try and link our projects to different programs and projects and needs that are in our local community. So they could be, for example, students in the past have designed um, for other students at school or designed for other teachers at school or we've involved ourselves in um, different occasions and festivals. We've done projects for the Luma Light Festival in Queenstown or we've helped with um, local community groups as well. So we've designed and made um, boomerang bags for a local volunteer group as well. So lots and lots of different opportunities but the things that are real, enthusiastic and engaging really for our students. Now, you describe yourself as having a low-floor, high-ceiling approach. Can you explain that to me, please? Yeah, so I look for different ways to try and make sure that each student has success in their learning. So when we um, have a project that the students are working on, we try and make sure that they all can achieve success in their learning area. So an example of that um, would be one of the projects that I've done in the past. Um, with an uh, augmented reality um, soft materials project. So the students um, chose a stakeholder or someone to design for, and um, they would use um, elements and principles of design to design a a graphic image, which went onto a um, soft material product of some description, so T-shirts and hats and cushions and things like that. Now, to enable success for the students, because they're all different abilities, how they made them was entirely up to the student's choice. They could choose different techniques and different methods. So we had screen printing and we have a cricket machine at school where the students design um, and make images um, on the computer. And then we print out and we cut it out in iron on vinyl. So there are different um, techniques for students that way. The um, image that they put onto the soft materials themselves actually were used in an augmented reality app. So it uses a trigger and it triggered to something else that the students had created digitally. So my lower ability students would have taken a photograph or maybe manipulated a photograph using digital media. 
Um, my higher ability students would make um, animations or stop motion anim uh, movies. And um, they were using um, computational thinking. So many of them were programming. And so some of them made animations using scratch programming. Some of them made animations using things like Google Slides. So lots of different techniques and um, processes to enable their own voice for their own learning. So they can work to their own level of ability, but still get a real sense of satisfaction from having created something from scratch. Absolutely, yes. Um, the thing is that it's trying to ensure that they have a high quality product for somebody or possibly for themselves. It depends on the project that they're working on. Yeah, and they do achieve success and they really like designing and making products for other people because they have a real sense of achievement that way as well. And it doesn't matter their ability level. In technology, students have got lots and lots of different strengths. Some of them are very good at designing and going through the design thinking process. Some of them are very technical and very mathematical, mathematical and critical and analytical. Um, and some of them are very, very practical. So we try and do different projects which will appeal to their different strengths. And failure is part of it about learning from your mistakes? Uh, oh, yes. Um, we've had a big approach. Um, as part of one of my inquiries recently, I've been focusing on building resilience um, for the past couple of years. And um, we have different approaches in technology to help them um, and enable them with different ways to build their own resilience in technology. Uh, one example would be um, in game design, for example, when we do digital technologies, we have a, what's called a fail faster approach. So it means that they go through a modeling and testing and trialing in a very iterative, repetitive uh, model where they can test, trial, and they're in a safe environment to fail. And I actually encourage them to make as many mistakes as they can because that's how you modify and develop and improve a design or a product. So, yeah, building up that kind of resilience, um, building up perseverance skills, building up tolerance for others as well because sometimes they work collaboratively. So they learn lots and lots of different skills within technology to help build their resilience. So it really does sound as if it's teaching them a lot more than just STEM skills. It sounds as if it's teaching them real-life skills. Uh, yes, uh, lots of real-life skills. Um, we try and incorporate what we call the front end of the curriculum, which are key competencies in technology. And that's lots and lots of basically employability skills for the future, the skills that they'll need in real life when they leave school. So things along the lines where we have resilience and perseverance, the ability to communicate their ideas, their ability to problem solve comes in quite a lot as well, their ability to think critically and to um, think evaluatively as well, like um, what's happened, what went wrong, how can I solve those problems, how could I do better in the future. So lots and lots of skills. What technology is nowadays, it's moving from this uh, perception of it being like a technical um, skills. Um, so like the old like carpentry and different kinds of automotive, those options are still available for students who like those kinds of practical skills. But it's much bigger than that. It's the, it's the reasons why we do things and also the impact that students have on the world. Um, so the impact on society, the impact on environment and how their, their ideas can influence that as well. So it is much, much bigger, really, as an overall subject than just making something nowadays, yeah. Thanks, Sarah. Sarah Washbrook is a technology teacher from Remarkables Primary School in Queenstown and winner of the 2020 Prime Minister's Science Teacher Prize.
Congratulations also to James Zingle. The former student from Bethlehem College in Tauranga has been selected as the 2020 Prime Minister's Future Science Prize winner. James's research project used a breast cancer data set run through both a classical computer and a quantum computer. He wanted to see which is superior in analysing the data and determining the type of breast cancer present. And that's the show. You can download the interviews as podcasts or listen again at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. While you're there, why not sign up for our free email newsletter and check out the enormous audio archive. We're on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. I'll be back next week, but for now it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Kia Pai Topo. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.